0: Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen.
1: This is iUniverse. My name is Brian Houston, and we are glad to be talking uh, about a book uh, involving a common detective who suddenly finds himself in a very uncommon situation where he goes from being the hunter to the hunt head. Uh, the name of the book is called Harry One Wonsai, and the subtitle of the book is The Fraud Murders. The author of the book is Gary Mallinson, and Gary is uh, on the phone with us right now from his home in uh, British Columbia, Canada. Gary, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. And uh, Happy New Year to you same to you. Very good. Uh, We want to ask you, first of all, to tell us a little bit about your own background before we get into talking about the book, Harry, One Side, The Fraud Murders.
2: Okay. Um, Well, I'm originally from the center of the country, from Ontario, uh, where it's a lot colder than it is here. I moved here about 12 years ago. I've been teaching for quite a while. I retired 12 years ago, 14 years ago, and since then, I tried... Various things like playing the cello, and now I'm writing
1: novels. Fantastic! And uh, is this your first novel?
2: Uh, yes, this is the first one. I've already written a second one. I'm on a third now.
1: So, tell me a little bit about the book uh, that uh, that you have written here, the one that we're talking about right now. Uh, you, uh, what's your background in in uh, detective stories and things like that? What was it that brought you to uh, this as a possible topic.
2: Oh, It's sort of interesting. I used to write short stories based on where I spent my childhoods in Ontario, and when I got out here, I wondered if it would be possible to write anything in a location in which I hadn't
1: grown up. So the whole thing started as another short story and just blossomed from there. And, and again, this was your first book?
2: Yeah, this is the first book.
1: Okay, uh, so when you sat down to write it, uh, how long did it take you to write it? And uh, talk a little bit. You said it started out as a short story, but uh, then it blossomed. So what was the time frame for uh, actually completing the book?
2: Uh, It took me about a year, all told, and then
1: uh, another six or seven months to edit it. The editing part is always fun, right?
2: Oh, yeah, that's horrible.
1: (laughs) (laughs) How was the experience for you writing the book? Um, I really enjoyed it, but it's, it's, it's
2: a strange process. It's very demanding, and it's on your mind all the time. And you're not very sure where it's going to go.
1: Well, tell us a little bit about Harry, one side the fraud murders, then. Tell us what the book is about.
2: Well, as you said, Harry one size uh, a small-town detective, and he really lives on insurance cases and uh, domestic cases, and then he gets involved with a bunch of professionals uh, in the building industry and um, has to fight his way to the surface, so he has uh, a lot of trouble, and as you said, he's mostly hunted rather than than the hunter. Uh, He enlists the aid of a number of very strange, offbeat characters in Vancouver, which is where he ends up, and uh, Once he forms these liaisons, he sort of battles his way to the surface, defeats the enemy, and everything ends up the right way.
1: Now, why did you write this book? What is the backstory that inspired you to write this? I read a lot of mysteries, and
2: I wondered if I could ever write one so uh, as a short story grew to be more than just a short story, I decided I'd give it a try and see if I could indeed write a mystery. That's that's how it happened.
1: And and how do you feel about the way it turned out? I'm pretty happy
2: about it, and I kept the cast of characters and wrote another one.
1: Oh, fantastic! So this is going to be a series.
2: Yeah, um, yeah. There are there are three in this series, and then I'll try something different.
1: Tell me about your main character here. Kind of, kind of give me a a, a profile of uh, of. Your, uh, your detective and what he's like and, and just kind of some of his qualities.
2: Well, he's, um, he's a friendly kind of bubbly guy who handles small cases, has a small office and, uh, and a secretary, and makes uh, sort of a living at this kind of thing. He's not really that good at it, and he's never handled you know, major cases. He works primarily for an insurance company, so most of what he does is, is uh, low-scale fraud of one sort or another. This whole thing starts off because of a fire in a, a half-completed condo building in, uh, in Harbor City, and he investigates that, finds out that it's Os- uh, arson. I can't prove it, but he's pretty sure, and nothing much happens for a few months until a researcher who's a friend of his is killed in the university library stacks, and she's researching fraud in the building industry. Then a couple of his friends get injured, his secretary gets abducted and raped, And Harry finds himself stuck in the middle of something that's a lot bigger than he thought it was. So, what we've got is a a small-town detective embroiled in something that's much, much bigger, and he has to learn as he goes. That—that's pretty much how it develops.
1: And—and did you have to learn as you went, Uh, as (laughs) you're thinking thinking as a detective? (laughs) What were your uh, research points, I guess?
2: Well, first of all, I had to to learn something about uh, computers a little more than I knew. And uh, a little bit about fraud. And then I had to research various things, like how um, psychopaths work, what the local Indian bands around here have as legends, because that gets into the book, too. So bits and pieces of research as I went along.
1: Now, who would this book appeal
2: to, and, and why? I think pretty much anybody who, who likes mysteries... Um, it has some okay points it 's a little bit unusual, but I think you could call it a mystery it 's not a police procedural it 's really mostly about Harry and his friends and uh, how they deal with the problems that are thrown at them
1: what is a, What is something that would set this book apart from uh, your your typical detective story then
2: well i think mostly because it's it 's um, Pitting a small-town detective from a, you know, a lazy little town on, on an island against uh, professionals in a city. Uh, it also involves settings on Vancouver Island and uh, Vancouver in British Columbia. And I don't think there are many around that, that handle both of those settings. So I think its major appeal is that it's local, um, that it has a lot of, of interesting characters.
1: Okay, give me some scenes or some characters that you'd like to highlight uh, here. That, some folks that uh, are particularly interesting or intriguing in your book.
2: Uh, there are two or three. There's um, there's a psychopathic killer who's a native uh, from the area. Uh, he's he's rather interesting, and his sidekick is a, a perverse, skinny guy named Stringbean who does various things and eventually gets killed in Vancouver's East End. Then there's Mama Jing. She's um, a matriarch of Chinatown, so she has a little army of her own. That was sort of a fun character to to develop. And there are some characters in the East End, a transvestite that uh, Harry the detective hooks up with and who becomes a sidekick of his and is a computer expert. Things like that should be interesting to readers.
1: Now, are are these based on any real people that you know? And if so, uh, maybe you ought to move.
2: No, none of them are real. They all just sort of come out of your head when you need them. <laughs> so you have
1: very good imagination, then.
2: Um, it, it's a funny process. I, I thought when I was teaching I knew how writers worked and how they develop plots, but I really didn't know anything. Writing, it's a very different process. Um, yeah, you have fun with them, and, and they get rather demanding themselves, because they develop characters fairly quickly, and you, you just have to use what they've got.
1: Now, uh, tell me a little bit about what you would like for someone after they've read this book. Uh, what would you like for them to have come away from this book with?
2: Uh, well, I think there are a couple of things that might be a little interesting to people. Um, a lot of the characters are certainly uh, not entirely normal and not entirely sane. So so part of, part of what the book does is to introduce offbeat characters sympathetically so that they're Uh, treated as if they were as valuable as any, you know, straight person, so to speak. Um, I think, too, that a lot of these small-time guys and East End guys and and down-and-outers have better values than you find in the major establishment, which is business establishment, at least, which is driven mostly by greed in this novel. Um, So there's kind of a reversal on on, uh, what is good and what is not. Any controversial aspects of this book? Uh, Controversial aspects. I think really mostly the intolerance of traditional values uh, when they're applied to people. People are very diverse and very different. And we need more sympathy for that diversity.
1: What topics related to your book do you feel qualified to discuss uh, in this situation here? Some of the things that you learned and and what you consider yourself to be an expert now on that maybe you weren't before?
2: Oh, I'd love to say I'm an expert on writing novels, but I'm not. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) One of the most difficult things I had to research was was, uh, how sociopaths and psychopaths work. Um, and what sociopaths look like in the, in the you know, business world, and uh, whether or not business leaders are sociopathic or tend to be to be successful, and that kind of thing. Um, I had to do some work on, on uh, procedures with uh, police forces to make sure that I wasn't doing stuff that was absolutely off the books. Other than that, I don't think there was much I had to research. It, it, the novel sort of flows by itself, and when you need to learn something, then you go to topographical maps and, uh, and papers from the RCMP and various other sources to find the material you need, and they keep on going.
1: Now, I have to ask you, did you find that there are a lot of sociopaths in business?
2: <laughs> oh, that's leading. Yeah. yeah. You did? <laughs> yeah. See, if you're going to be successful, you can't be too mild-mannered. You can't be too sympathetic. You have to be pretty hard-boiled. And you have to um, you know roll with the punches a lot more than most of us are capable of doing.
1: Uh, a little bloodthirsty, too?
2: Yep, there's that as well. Yep. <laughs> My main character, business character, the, the one who initiates all this fraud, is simply called the Gray Man. He doesn't even have a name.
1: The Gray Man. Yep. So in doing this, what was the most challenging part about writing this book, the most fun and rewarding part of it? The characters.
2: Um, they're the most challenging because you really don't know what they're going to make you do. Uh, you don't know what they're going to get into. It's, you, know, you just end up in situations with them and you have to figure out a way to solve them without you know, walking outside the character that's already developed. That, I just found the characters intriguing and I found it difficult to get them to do what I wanted them to do.
1: Now, uh, the challenge is going to be, because you're talking about a small-town detective, you're talking about uh, a a certain level of innocence there, I would think. Uh, So how are you going to continue to develop this um, very seedy underside in a small town where those things usually don't exist?
2: Well, the second novel picks up where the first one leaves off, but this time I've got a a killer on the island who murders women, and uh, he's definitely a... uh, Psychopath. So, Harry now gets involved in, in hunting one single killer and has a cast of characters here who develop, who help him solve that case.
1: And when will you expect that book to be out? Oh, it should be out.
2: I'm almost finishing the editing, about another two or three months, so it should be out sometime next year, I think.
1: How many books in the series do you think you have?
2: Three. Three. There's, uh, not, nothing gets solved in the second one, so the guy gets caught in the third one.
1: Ah, very good. Okay, so but you know that three, you're done. Three, I'm done with this series. Then I'd like to try something different. Okay, very good. Now, is there anything that uh, I haven't asked you about the book that uh, you'd like to share with people?
2: Not really. I just, just hope it succeeds, and I hope people enjoy it. All right, so tell me where people
1: can get the book, Harry, One Side.
2: I think you can order it from any bookseller. It's, uh, you can get it from Amazon, certainly, it's uh, listed by Barnes & Noble, it's an e-book. Uh, you can order it from any bookstore, and um, you could probably request it from any library they bring it in.
1: All right, and do you have any um, websites, social media, anything like that that you'd like to promote while we have you online? Um, that's just
2: being developed, but I do have a website called um, harryoneside.com. So. You can look up the novel there.
1: What does the website offer? Uh, Just a
2: synopsis of the book and uh, some basic facts about me, I guess.
1: Fantastic. Well, Gary, it's great talking to you. We want to wish you the best of luck with your book, Harry, One Side, The Fraud, Murders. uh, And we look forward to the series uh, with books two and three coming out uh, in the uh, coming months years, I guess? (laughs) Years, probably. (laughs) Did did you find the second book to be easier and faster to write than the first one?
2: Yeah, well, yeah, it took about half the time to write, but it's going to take uh, an equally
1: long time to edit. Always fun, that editing. Always fun, yes. (laughs) Well, Gary, thank you so much for coming on with us today. We really do appreciate it, and again, we want everybody to be sure and uh, pick up the book Harry, One Side, The Fraud Murders. Uh, It is, uh, of course, published again by iUniverse, and uh, it's available uh, at all bookstores online and off so uh, best of luck with the book thank you very much thank you very much gary mallinson the author of the book harry one side the fraud murders i'm brian houston this is iUniverse universe radio thanks very much for listening and we'll talk to you next time
0: you're listening to i universe radio we'll be back right after these messages
1: This is iUniverse Radio. My name is Brian Houston. Thanks very much for listening today. We're going to be talking about the wisdom of our parents, uh, particularly our moms. Uh, Many times uh, when they're actually raising us, uh, a lot of the things that they say uh, may leave us rolling our eyes and shaking our heads, but then after we grow up, uh, we look back and find out that uh, our mothers were pretty smart people after all. And With us to uh, talk about her book, As My Mother Would Say... Subtitle: Como decía mi mama. Did I do that right? My mama. Ma mama. Yeah.
4: Como decía mi mama.
1: Very good for somebody that does not speak Spanish. I just want you, you to did know. Did well. Uh, I appreciate that. Uh, with us on the telephone is Dr. Judith Vaez. She is at her home in California. First of all, Dr. Vaez, a uh, uh, happy new year to you. Thank you. Thank you. Same to you. And thanks very much for coming on and talking to us about your book, uh, As My Mother Would Say. First of all, before we get into the book, tell us a little bit about yourself.
4: A little bit about myself. Well, I was born in San Bernardino, California, a first generation from Mexican immigrant parents that came to this country at the ages of 13 and 15, um, escaping the Mexican Revolution and the chaos that it created for many people. And they came with a sixth-grade education, and they chose San Bernardino, California as their home, and they raised eight children. And for a young couple that only had a sixth-grade education, I am very proud of what they accomplished. It's interesting because my mother could read and write. She had a beautiful handwriting. She must have learned that in the convent, because back in those days, they didn't really educate young girls because we were supposed to have babies, and that was it. But my mother could read beautifully, uh, write beautifully, and I, I am, I am making assumptions that she must have gained this knowledge from the nuns where she was raised in Mexico City. H- having said that, both of them, I think, were very successful. They raised eight children. And they insisted that we learn English in order to succeed in this country that they had come to because that was the only way that that anyone can really succeed. You have to be familiar with the language. So my father would lock himself up, my mother tells me, in his room and told her, don't disturb me because I'm going to learn English. And he he was self-taught and he did very well. He was a very successful entrepreneur, uh, an activist back in the thirties and forties. Um, he eventually became the manager of the store where he started as a stock boy. Then he became a promoter of Mexican artists, bringing them to this country because he realized that during the Second World War there was a real need for for people to connect with the talent of Mexico because many braceros, which were Mexican nationals, were coming to this country to do the work in the fields and in the factories. And uh, so my father started this promotion of Mexican artists, bringing them to this country, specifically to California, touring the state, and he did very well. Uh, so, And this is a man with a sixth grade education. He not only did that, but he also started a weekly newspaper in Spanish, and he also was, a, was a, one of the pioneers in the Inland Empire to start a Spanish-speaking radio broadcast. So I had some pretty good role models. And, my, and of course, we were raised in a very conservative, traditional Mexican family. And with it are sprinklings of daily proverbs or dichos, as my mother would call them. So those were our, those were our teachings, all eight of us. She had, they had eight children uh, remember those dichos fondly and sometimes we laughed because when she would first say them as we were growing up we didn't know what the heck she was talking about <laughs> it didn't make any sense and so we would kind of make fun of it but then as we got older we found ourselves using them ourselves and uh, hence the purpose of the book because while I was working in my different roles first as a as a faculty member <clears throat> at the college, then as an administrator at the colleges, then as a president at different colleges, then as a mayor of my city after I retired for the fifth time, um, I always used my mother's sayings and proverbs, and people would get a big kick out of it. And they would tell me, Judith, you've got to write these down because you're going to forget them. So then when I finally retired for the 7th or 8th time. And sometimes I wonder if I am retired. I decided okay, I'll write these down and I started. But what was really difficult for me was to remember them in isolation. <clears throat> you can't just sit and say, okay, dicho number one. It doesn't happen that way. The situation has to present itself and the context of the situation that will prompt one of these dichos. Consequently, it took me a while to Put all these together, then, after I decided okay that, that, that's it i 'm just going to have this published, and we 'll see what happens and What I find is that many people that are buying my little book contact me and they say they remember their parents saying the same things, <laughs> they remember their mothers telling them the same things they remember their grandparents, so I guess i, I i've kindled a little a little fire among especially Spanish-speaking families, not necessarily Mexican. You could be Spanish or you could be from Central America. I think fundamentally the root does come from Spain, from the Spanish language and the wisdom of our parents. But anyway, after that book was published, I've come up with at least ten more that, uh, again, I say the context that the situation has to present itself. So I have found myself with at least ten that I left out not by design, but the situation doesn't come up. I don't know if that helps, does it?
1: It right, absolutely helps. Now, uh, before we move on to the book uh, and talk more about it, I do want to point out uh, that, uh, obviously, your parents were extremely motivated. They had a a, a fantastic uh, wisdom about them uh, for people who had uh, such limited education, uh, and that has... Uh, I guess, been passed on to you, the first Latina president of a college or a university in California, as well as being the first Latina to be elected mayor of a city of over 100,000 people in the United States, Uh, those are fantastic accomplishments that uh, I'm sure you have to credit your parents uh, greatly for what you've been able to uh, accomplish. Uh, I do,
4: I do, And, and that's reflected in some of her sayings. Uh, el hambre me tumba y el orgullo me levanta hunger may knock me down but pride will always hold me upright and my mother always said don't ever say you can't do something just say you'll try and uh, don't let people know that you don't know what you're doing <laughs> that's not in the book but <laughs> if you don't know it, <laughs> um, fake it <laughs> but, uh, yeah fake it, learn it and do it better than whoever that was there before you and, and that has carried me through my entire life simple things like that, but it was the pride, the pride that we get from, I guess the Spanish pride as my mother would call it, but it was the pride of the family that we had to set an example, and uh, it's a funny story, I remember going to PTA meetings, my mother would take me religiously every month, we'd go to PTA meetings, and then on the way home, she would always say, que dijeron hija, which means, what did they talk about? And I, so I would explain to her, well, they talked about open house, they talked about the grades, they talked about whatever they talked about. After about the fifth PTA meeting, walking home, my mother says to me, hija, ¿qué dijeron? And then, of course, kids are kind of cruel. I said to my mother, si no entiendes, ¿por qué vienes? Which means, if you don't understand, why do you keep coming? (laughs) And she responded. course in Spanish, ah, pero ellos no saben que yo no sé, which means, ah, they don't know that I don't know English. (laughs) The only thing they know is that I'm your mother, and I care about your education. So the lesson there is, for parents that are listening, you have to let the teachers and the schools believe that you have an interest in the education of your children, and they will pay attention to you. That's what my mother believed. Well, and I, I didn't get it at the time. I'm walking home with her, that's kind of stupid, that doesn't make sense, they know I'm your mother. Of course, they know I'm your mother because you go with me, <laughs> but uh, now it makes sense.
1: Just It's just an example of the uh, the importance of just being there. Just
4: being there,
1: yes. <laughs> Tell me about some of the other messages uh, that uh, you want to convey to readers uh, in this book, some things that uh, your mother passed on to you through some of these sayings that have really uh, impacted you?
4: The, well, the, the main one, I, I call it my mantra, which lo cortes no quita lo valiente, which means courtesy does not diminish your courage. Always take the high road. Always be polite. Be assertive, but courteous. And uh, that came in very, very handy during my career because as you know, or maybe not, but I'm sure you do, you run into very difficult people in your career. And the easiest thing to do is to use expertise and just tell people off. That's the easy thing to do. The tough thing to do is to suck it up, let them talk, and, uh, and, and just dismiss it and keep moving forward. Continue doing what you wanted to do anyway, but you don't have to... Step all over people to get it done that was I think the most important one because in a Mexican family and I tried to speak to as many Latino groups as possible my mother always said no tienes que ser bien educada you have to be well educated that does not mean a formal education with a degree that means that you are always well-mannered you are always polite you are always courteous, and that shows very good upbringing in your home because the education is is learned at your mother's breast,
5: hmm.
4: not in schools. Now, if we can all remember that, I, I don't think that's necessarily true just for Mexican families. Oh,
1: absolutely I not.
4: All of us could learn from that. Yeah, I, I, to be we, well-educated is to be well-mannered.
1: In the... Uh preparation for the interview. I was reading uh, some of the comments that you'd made in a, in a questionnaire talking about uh, speaking to uh, Latino families, uh, the growing Latino population, and uh, your thoughts that uh, many young Latino families have uh, have already forgotten some of these uh, things that you learned. Uh, I want to tell you that that's not, uh, <laughs> that's not unique to just Latino families. Uh, it seems to be that way all around right now.
4: That's true, and some blame the uh, I guess the breakdown of families okay I'll give you that but everybody has a mother <laughs> <laughs> you all have a mother the mother may not have a husband to help her raise her kids but the education of your children starts with you don't, you don't have to be Latino to do that the lack of respect that kids show their teachers now I speak to many teachers and they they're just they're beside themselves because they they feel that young people do not respect learning or respect authority or even respect their teachers. And uh, that all starts in the home. Unfortunately, we've become such a litigious society that teachers are even threatened by the students, and if they don't get their way with the students, the parents come down on them. What did you... You told my kid to shut up. Well, no, I told them to be quiet. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, and so the teachers... uh, I get a little intimidated. Then that's that's not how it should be. We have a responsibility to teach our children to be respectful at all times. You don't have to like the person and we run across a lot of people that we don't like, but um we're mindful. It it's like the what is it? The English saying you you draw more with honey than with What what's the expression in English? Um
1: more with honey than with uh vinegar, I think. That's it. That's that, it. Yeah. Okay.
4: Kind of like that.
1: Something. And something along those lines.
4: Something along those lines, and uh, many uh, Mexican families that with whom I have met since the book came out, uh, they love talking about it, and they are reminded of how they were raised, and they agree that maybe their grandchildren need to get a little sprinkling of those of those ancient dichos, so that we can remember what is really important.
1: Is that the ultimate goal of your book? Are you trying to, are you hopeful that uh, maybe uh, Latinos and and readers of the book in general, of all nationalities and backgrounds, uh, might be inspired by reading this book to maybe go back to some of those values?
4: You know, I'd like to say yes, that would sound good, wouldn't it? (laughs) But that wasn't the original intent. I just wanted to write these puppies down so I wouldn't forget them <laughs> and pass them on to, to especially all my colleagues who have worked with me. I sent them a copy as soon as they came out, and they were just ecstatic. Mm. Finally, Judith, finally you did it. And then they would think of some some sayings that I would use that are not in the book, and I'd say, oh, God, I forgot about that one. <laughs> but uh, that was that was the motivation initially. Now, this other is just kind of a side benefit because... It is true. We need to teach our children the importance of education, of being well mannered, and uh, courtesy and humility does not necessarily mean weakness. Quite the contrary. It takes a bigger person to be polite and courageous, especially in the face of someone that you would just like to pop. <laughs> <laughs> just knock them down but
1: uh, and i'm guessing you know, i'm guessing you ran into quite a few of those in your political
4: life oh yes my political <laughs> life and also on the college campuses don't believe me politics is not limited to city politics or to state or federal that's in the formal sense politics exists everywhere mm-hmm. in elementary schools there's always a pecking order and uh, in junior high and in high schools because I taught at all those levels and on the college level. Politics is just the name of the game. It just takes a different face. It's not formal politics, elected politicians, but even in churches, you find that to be true, too. I have learned that.
1: Absolutely. Hospitals,
4: every organization is political. And, you know, weaving your way through that organization takes real skill and insight and courtesy. Well said. Doesn't mean you're weak. Doesn't mean you're a pushover. But you have principles and you have to remember. You have to remember your, those principles that guide you.
1: Anything that I have not asked you about this book that you'd like to uh, pass on as we start to wind down the interview?
4: Well, that uh, that would be it. My motivation was spurred by my uh, colleagues' assistance Even my students, when I was teaching Spanish, I would put a dicho on the board for the whole week, and they were to use it and understand it, and some of them don't make sense. For example, my mother would say, No le busques tres pies al gato, when I was a kid. Don't look for three legs on a cat. What the heck does that mean, mother? (laughs) What does that mean? (laughs) Well, it didn't mean really a three-legged cat. It meant... Don't ask the obvious and don't stir up trouble because you know what the answer is. You just want to create discomfort. Now, that's a lot to say for a three legged cat, but that's what she meant. <laughs> and <laughs> uh, anyway, I found I, I kind of laughed as I was remembering these and remembering when I was a child and thinking to myself, I think my mom makes these up. She said, There's no way that, <laughs> that anybody said that at any one time. But. Uh, Later I found out, yep, she wasn't the only one. It's uh, Many grandmothers thank me now and say, gracias. They remember their parents passing that down. And I hope that young Latino families, you don't have to be Latino to follow this, remember how valuable and how important it is that you guide your children through humor. Some of those sayings that my mother had were pretty funny. I was thinking of another one when I was at a park recently and this young man came up to me and he asked me if I like dating younger men and I looked at him (laughs) and I thought, this saying is not in the book, but my mother would say hmm, tendre malos gustos pero no malos ratos, which means I may have bad moments but I don't have bad taste (laughs) 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 and then Uh. then I remembered another one I was in church and uh a Catholic church and there's a group of ladies that kind of fix up and dress up the saints you know either with flowers or adornments that you put on the saints and back in the olden days if a woman was going to be an old maid the saying around the barrio was se va a quedar a vestir santos she's going to end up being an old maid and dressing up the saints in the church Mm. my mother's retort to that and I didn't understand it at the time, but I do now. She said, it's better to dress saints than undress drunks. <laughs> That's mejor, a great saying. You know,
1: that, that should be the title of the mejor, next book.
4: <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> mejor vestir santos que desvestir borrachos. Better to dress up the saints than undress the drunks. So if you're going to be an old maid, just better to be alone than in bad company. <laughs>
1: it goes back to the good taste again, right? It goes back to <laughs> <laughs> yes. oh. oh, All right, so uh, when it's all said and done, where can we find your book? Uh, again, the name of the book is As My Mother Would Say. It's written by Dr. Judith Vaez. Where can we find the book? Uh, it's published by iUniverse.
4: I think it's in Amazon.com, if I remember correctly, or Amazon. You can purchase it through Amazon.
1: Okay. <clears throat> and do you have any websites or social media that you'd like to add or promote uh, while we're talking?
4: You know, I don't. I, As I said, my intention initially was just to write these sayings down so we wouldn't forget them. But I've been asked for a website, so maybe I need to do that.
1: Now, do you plan on uh, doing a second book of these sayings?
4: Well, let's see how this first one goes. And if I do the second one, I, I, I've i already got about ten that aren't in the book, like the one about dressing saints and not undressing drunks.
1: I love it. I love it.
4: Because <laughs> it makes sense, doesn't
1: it? it? It makes sense, and it's very funny at the same time. So <laughs> I, I think that's fantastic. Yeah. Dr. Judith Vallez, thank you so much for being on with us today. Uh, We wish you the best of luck with As My Mother Would Say. Uh, It's a fantastic concept, and I really enjoyed uh, the opportunity to visit with you today.
4: Thank you very much.
1: Yes, ma'am. Again, my name is Brian Houston. This is iUniverse Radio. Pick up the book, As My Mother Would Say. It's published by iUniverse. Thanks very much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.
0: You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages.
3: Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu, Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown, and after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 success stories from successful entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu, Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on com.
0: Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen.
1: This is iUniverse Radio. My name is Brian Houston. Today we are going to be uh, talking to a gentleman who has a, an incredible story about coming over to this country from a very oppressive regime, an athlete uh, who uh, had to go undercover, had to do a lot of things that uh, put his life at great danger, and we're very pleased to talk to him today. The name of the book is Beyond My Dreams, From Communist Romania to the Oval Office. It is written by Peter Marmoranu. Peter, thank you very much for coming on with us today. We appreciate it. And uh, first of all, let's talk a little bit about your background. Tell me a little bit about yourself before we get into talking about your book, Beyond My Dreams from Communist Romania to the Oval Office.
5: Mm -hmm. Well, I was born in Romania under the Communist regime. Uh, As a child, I remember I had a pretty good life until uh, because I was born in 1941. But in 1948, the Russians took over the Eastern Europe. So Romania became a... uh, Satellite country for Russia, together with all the other, you know, Eastern European countries. So we start everything changed overnight. We start to suffer tremendous. Uh, the Communist Party took over. The regime uh, became uh, communist. Um, the government became communist. or we, the people, were very, very upset and very disappointed. Uh, the government forced us to move out of the house because they apply all the Russian rules which allowed each person to have certain square footage. So for four people, my parents, my grandmother, and myself, we allowed only one bedroom. And they moved us into a really small dilapidated house. We shared the three bedrooms in a house with two other families who they were there they already, and a small, tiny bathroom, and a small kitchen. So the life became horrible. But uh, I worked very hard. I, my family went into a deep depression. My father lost the job, had to move out of Bucharest, had to find a job at the oil fields about 45 miles from Bucharest. So he will earn about $40 a month, which was out of uh, you know, range to, to, for us to survive. We tried very hard. Uh, my father could not live with us because there was no room for him in one bedroom. But the three of us lived in a very small, tiny uh, bedroom. I slept on a floor in a small mattress. My mother became very sick. She could not walk anymore. And my grandmother slept on a small recliner store. So finally, I reached age 10 when I realized that we can't survive anymore. We didn't have any more food or uh, wood for a winter to warm up the bedroom. So I found a job as a ball boy at the sport complex at the end of my street. I got a job. I was making sometimes $2 a week, sometimes $1.50. fifty. all depends. I had a full-time job working there. And I started bringing the money. The only time my life started to get better is when I was 18 years old. I played very, very good tennis. I was number two player in the country. And the military club, instead of sending me to two years mandatory service, they took me in to play tennis and represent them, and that changed my life. The next day I became an officer, I got a very good salary, and finally, you know, it was my dream to get my family out of poverty. And I think I did it, but it took me me ten years to see my family suffering, and uh, finally I did it. And that's the way I started to play professional tennis. Uh, That's the way I travel uh, representing Romania and about 51 countries all over the world and 119 cities. And uh, that's what brought me to United States later on.
1: Uh, At what point did you determine that uh, you were going to try to um, make your escape and uh, stay in the United States?
5: Well, I played many times in the United States and uh, I had a chance to see a different life, completely different life, than what Romania had. Uh, Romania was a country of about 22 million, and only probably, I would say, the most. It's about 200 people who had a privilege and go go through all the verification and be, be you know had passport. But you also have to be very good, very very good in what you're doing. Otherwise, they will not, they will cut you off. So I play tennis, I play very well, but I play under tremendous pressure. So you know, you see the life outside of Romania um i have some some very good friends and i met some uh, uh very important people in israel i met a lot of heads of states all over and in my mind the idea start to you know come through and i i said maybe one day i will just run away from here but i knew what was going to happen my family had to be jailed immediately and they and i didn't want to do that to them but right away you can see the difference on a life between romania And uh, the free world. That's the reason I I finally decided that when my mother died, my father died, um, I said this is not my country anymore. So I left.
1: And you were free to do so because uh, there were no other family members for you to take care of?
5: No, I wasn't free to go. I defected.
1: But what I'm saying is from a personal uh, feeling, uh, yeah. once, your, once your parents were gone, uh, you didn't feel any uh, strong obligation to continue to live the life that you lived to be able to support them?
5: That somehow is correct. I had an old grandmother. She was 89 years old. I couldn't tell anybody that I'm thinking about defecting and walking away from her, because defection is a very, very tough Thing. But my grandmother encouraged me, says, don't worry about me. I'm 89 years old. Uh, whatever's going to happen to me, I live my life already. Uh, so hopefully I'll be able to see her someday. But I had no idea that I would be able to see her anymore.
1: Were you ever ever able to see her again?
5: Well, I was very fortunate. Some good things in, in my life happened. When I was in the you know, deepest hole possible, it looked like somebody above me was, was watching And helped me. So I defected from Romania in 1975, and I had the chance to play tennis with President Ford in the summer of 1975 and with uh, his former chief of staff, Donald Rumsfeld. And from that day on, my life changed because they got involved and they helped me with my uh, grandmother. She never got arrested. They never took our apartment away, and she was able to come and, and visit me. She got the passport. otherwise, the passport office would, never never, never chance to for for them to talk to her. They wouldn't even acknowledge her. so that was my luck in life uh, regarding my family.
1: now obviously, you were a a world class tennis player uh playing with people like Eli Nastasi, correct?
5: Yes, yes, I, I play with him and uh, Jon Tyriaak for uh, probably 12 to 13 years. I started as a junior. Tiriak was three years older than I I was. And, uh, you know, with uh, with Nastassia, we both belonged to the Army Club. Uh, So we played for Army Club. We won a lot of tournaments together. We won a lot of championships together. And, uh, you know, I describe him quite well in a book. Uh, When he asked me, you know, uh, a couple of months ago, if I wrote about him, I said I wrote about you a lot more than you wrote about me in your book. <laughs> so, <laughs> all
1: right, I have to ask you uh, as we get into this because I'm sure it's a, uh, a part of the book. How did you come to play tennis with President Gerald Ford? That doesn't well, just I happen. I had a
5: job. Yeah, I had a job. I was working in a very sophisticated country club in Chicago, in Winnetka, Illinois, and in the summer of '75. I, right after I defected from from Romania, I defected on April 15. Uh, May 1st, I went back to Chicago and I I had the job as a, a tennis director, head pro, and uh, it just happened that on that uh, Fourth of July weekend, uh, President Ford came to visit some friends or a family because he was uh, he was a part of Illinois. So he came to the club and uh, an afternoon. I played tennis with him, I spoke with him, I had, uh, had a couple of iced tea, I spoke with Donna Rumsfeld, and Donna Rumsfeld helped me a lot to uh, get my green card. Um, so I, I told President Ford my problems with the family, and uh, he said, look, let's see if we can help you, let's see if we do something for you. And that was my chance that, you know, I was very, very unf- very fortunate, very lucky that I played with him.
1: That's an amazing story. Uh, Prior to that, based on some of the things I'm reading in the back cover of the book and so forth, Mm -hmm. uh, you were traveling with packets of top-secret documents uh, as part of your job. Is that how that all worked out?
5: Yes. When I was 23 years old and I was lieutenant major in the Army, um, the KGB recruited me to do some work for them. and I was scared because I I thought they they were going to ask me to become an informer. I just didn't want to do that you know, to tell them what my uh, teammates are doing, what my friends are doing, what the family, uh, that I didn't want to do it, even if I didn't have a choice. But what they asked me is to become a courier. Uh, They knew exactly that the tennis players have no problem traveling all over the world. And when you show up at somewhere at the airport and you have uh, six to eight rackets in a tennis bag, they will never ask you. What they're doing, they will tell you good luck to you, hope to you in the tournament. So they knew that. So they gave me two envelopes. Every time I left the country, anywhere I, I went, they brought me at the airport two envelopes sealed, which I keep them in my tennis cover among the rackets. And the first thing I did, I called the Romanian embassy and uh, uh, military attaché uh, would come and pick up, or I will take a cab and go there and give it to him. And nobody knew. About this,
1: Were you ever... Very
5: secret uh, stuff.
1: Now, did you ever feel like you were in danger while you were doing this?
5: No, because I was working for the government. And what happened from that day on, they gave me a special passport. I didn't have to get an exit visa like everybody else, which was sometime for a very short period. I had a different color passport. It was a blue color passport, which was mostly used for diplomats. So anywhere you, you, you go and they see your passport, they had no questions for you. So I could leave Romania at any day, any time, on any border crossing.
1: But even given these, I guess, privileges based on the way the country was run at that time, you saw America and you saw another way of life that uh, just appealed to you to a point that you were willing to risk uh, everything to uh, escape?
5: Yes, I did. Uh, I got to the point and I could not take that kind of life. Even if I had money and I had fame and I had a nice apartment, I just I was devastated to see my friends, to see families I knew for, for so many years. They were living in very poor conditions. They had no money. Um, if somebody was old enough to get a pension, the pension was about $12 a month you could not live with that kind of money. The depression took over the country, and I felt that, you know, I don't deserve that anymore. So, you know, I wanted to go somewhere else. I, uh, I met uh, Moshe Dayan in, uh, in Israel, and I wanted to run away from Romania, but he was very smart, and he told me that there's no way for me to stay in Israel. They're going to find me the next day and they're going to, no, get to me. They, or they kill me or they will take me back somehow to Romania and I will go to jail for many years. In United States, I had a lot of uh, good things waiting for me. And I've always said I was very, very grateful to this country the way they received me with open arms and uh, helped me. And, then, you know, of course, you know, it's my style. never disappointed anyone. I worked very hard, uh, but uh, that's what, you know, you see the difference on life, you can 't take it anymore.
1: Now, uh, even after you escaped from Romania and defected to the United States, um, you still were under a considerable amount of danger, weren't you?
5: Oh, absolutely, absolutely. If they will find me, and I 'm sure somehow the Romanian embassy knew, but I never get give to anybody my address, and I, I had a small home. I uh, put cardboard in the windows, I put lights around the house, I never went straight home. But I, they knew, they knew where I am. But because of uh, President Ford uh, you know, and Donna Bransfeld, they did not try to do anything. They tried to, to convince me to go back, they called me, they wrote me a letter, uh, they followed me to Chicago to my job, uh, but I I, no, I I said, listen, this is too late. I am not going to go back. But I was, I wasn't, a you know, the FBI protected me for many years because if I said, look, if somebody, I, I, you no, know, at that time I was a captain in the army and I was very afraid, they're going to follow me and uh, they're going to try to get me into a van somewhere and then, you know, get me out of the country or they just shoot me on the street. And, of course, I was very scared.
1: So even in the midst of building a new life and hopefully a better life, you still lived under a, an immense amount of pressure.
5: A lot of pressure, bro. a lot of pressure. Yes, absolutely. I, uh, I had nightmares. Um, I played tennis with a psychiatrist, and he gave me some uh, medicine. He says it's normal. I had nightmares. Um, I was jumping in the middle of the night, sweating, and uh, I, in my dream, I felt that that uh, the KGB are around my house, and uh, you know, I had no way to to defend myself, and that's I was very scared, very very scared. I was I was sentenced to nine years in jail after the day I defected. So it's from 75, probably, to 85. But, I, you know, you, when you read the book, you'll see that I took the chance of my life. I went back when the communist regime was still in power, and I had nightmares when I got there.
1: Now, you got to see firsthand, though, uh, the fall of that regime, right?
5: Yes, yes, yeah. Yeah. Um, I took my fiancée, she's an American, I wasn't, I wasn't married to her at that time, and uh, we went there in uh, l- uh, late November 1988, a year before the major revolution Romania had, and we got stopped by the army, we got interrogated, we got, um, it was really, really, really nightmare, but very lucky, you know, we, um, we went through, and um, you know, I had to go to Romania because the government wanted to sell my family plot. At the cemetery. So I didn't want to lose that. And I paid a lot of money, but they didn't care. They wanted me to show up and sign the forms and pay more money. And I had to do it. What? At that time, Romania was in the worst shape possible. And that fall of 1988, you know, the depression and then the oppression, everything in Romania was at the highest level. And we were witnesses that uh, beginning of the revolution. We were in Transylvania, in Brasov. And when we got stopped by the army, we saw that. Uh, um, you know, riots on a street, on the you know, the people burn the Communist Party house. They uh, destroy cars on the street, and we escape. It was a miracle because I rented a car in Bucharest, and the car had uh, government plates. So when people saw the government plates, they will destroy. They will break the car in two pieces, and they kill the people inside. Wow. So you will see on a book that I I had to run away and i went through somebody's uh, fence and i oh i just just was horrible to get away from there and my fiance was scared to death i don't think how i never understood how she was able to you know control herself
1: what uh, motivated you to write all of this in a book
5: well when i defected from the country i got political asylum at jfk airport in new york and after a few years i you know i first i wanted to put it away i i said i'm i'm not going to ever think about what I went through. But then I start thinking, well, they might be the way to tell the people in this country what I went through. And uh, you know, just to motivate them. You know, it's, it's never end of the world. You know, you'll get through. If I went through to what I had to do, and I survived, and I got today where I am, then anybody can do it. And a lot of friends encourage me to do that. Say, you know something? You did so much, so much, and so many things that, you know, if somebody will, will learn something from you, that will mean a lot, of, a lot of good things happening to that person. And I think that that's, that was the truth. But it took me three and a half years. Uh, my main problem was that <clears throat> I, don't, I don't have a high school or uh, college in this country. Mm-hmm. It was almost impossible for me to spell and write. So what I did, I bought that device, the dragon, yes. which you dictate, <laughs> and everything comes on a screen. And uh, it took me three and a half years to finally finish everything. I was, I was born with, with a very, very, very good memory from the, from the very beginning. I remember everything like was no two months ago. But to be honest, I had a very hard time. As I remember and start to write everything, everything came back to me. And I suffered tremendous.
1: I can imagine. Uh,
2: my
5: wife my wife started saying, no, <clears throat> what's wrong with you? You're jumping up, you're crying, uh, and you sleep. Um, so, you know, it's it was was, was very hard. But I, once I decided to, to start writing, I never stopped. I just went, uh, you know, everything. Once, I described every, every detail.
1: Once you completed the book, uh, was that like a cleansing for you? Are you beyond that now? Did that help you to uh, get over all these uh, horrible memories?
5: It did help. It did help. Because I got it out, and I, you know, so far a lot of people bought the book, and they're very happy with it. I'm doing motivation speeches all over, and uh, people are very happy to to, to hear, you know, because it very, it's very hard for uh, people who live in a, you know, in a free world to understand what happened to a country, you know, a few thousand miles away. It was like the situation in North Korea today. Uh, you can put the two countries together, and... Uh, the same thing, dictatorship and oppression and, uh, you know, poverty. But I, I'm feeling much better that I, I got everything out and I, you know, I'm, I'm, I feel relaxed now.
1: Well, it's a fascinating story. Is there anything else that you'd like to add that I haven't asked you about?
5: Well, I think I'm very happy with the book. And uh, I, I describe the book uh, to my um, uh, speaking engagements, and I have a lot of them. And, uh, you know, everything comes out very, very well. Now I'm also uh, very happy with uh, iUniverse. They did a very, very good job. Very good job. Uh, the quality of the book and whatever they, how they did the job, it's it's. Um, I would recommend it to anybody.
1: Fantastic. Now, where can people find your book, "Beyond My Dreams" from Communist Romania uh, to the United to States the to Office. the to the Oval Office?
5: Yeah. Uh, right now they they can find it on iUniverse.com and uh, Amazon.com and also available on e-book. A lot of people in Romania uh, bought an e-book. I have a lot of emails, and I advertise my book on uh, Facebook, on LinkedIn, and Twitter, and I have a, you know, a lot of success with that. So people are just fascinating today. The most important thing is a true story. There's nothing, nothing added to, to, to the book. Exactly what happened, that's what the book says about
1: Well, it, uh, it, again, is a fascinating story, and congratulations on uh, getting the book out. Uh, We wish you the best of luck with it, and uh, look forward to uh, much success with this book. Good luck to you.
5: Thank you, Brian. Thank you so much.
1: The name of the book is Beyond My Dreams, From Communist Romania to the Oval Office. It is published by iUniverse. It's written by Peter Mamaranyu. Is that right? Did I get it right this that's, time?
5: That's great. That's good. That's
1: good. <laughs> One of these days, I'll keep practicing, and then someday I'll be able to do it without even thinking
5: about it. Well, you'll see my name probably in the near future, James, James Bond. <laughs> so everybody can pronounce it.
1: <laughs> I think that's a fantastic idea. Peter, thank you so much for coming on with us. Thank we really you, Brian. Appreciate it.
5: Thank you. Happy holidays to you.
1: Happy holidays to you. Thank and you. again, uh, you. my name is Brian Houston. This is iUniverse Radio. Thanks very much for listening, and we'll
0: talk to you next iUniverse time. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.